This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at MedEdMedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. The vast majority of the patients we see, the system failed them, and their family failed them, and so they coped in the very best way they knew how. Once you start showing judgment, you're putting something in the way of your relationship with that patient. Once the title of malingering or something like that's put in a patient's chart, like boom, you've just like torched people's like perspective on that person. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. With me today, a gaggle of medical students, including M4, Madeline Cusimano. From, uh, we've got uh, M3, Nathan Spitz. Salutations. M4, Emma Barr is to his, uh, what is that, you're right. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and then M4, Nick Lind is here also. Hey, Dave. To her right. I am so glad you guys are here today because I had a spur of the moment idea for the show yesterday because I was lucky enough to record an interview between Kate DeCherry, our, our leader, here in the Writing Humanities program, and Dr. Abby Hardy Fairbanks, an OB-GYN doc who works with perinatal substance users as part of her work. It was a wonderful interview, and during that recording, I kept like, like I kept hearing things that I thought y'all needed to, or at least have reinforced before I lose like you, Emma, and and Madeline. So I'm going to put on, this is my teaching hat, I guess. This is my moment to teach, except it's going to be Dr. Hardy Fairbanks. So I don't know what that makes me. Am am I the projector in the room? I'm not sure. Anyway, point is, I did get permission from her to excerpt some of those things for today's show, and I'd love to hear your reactions. So we're going to, we're just going to jump right in. And speaking of teaching, like, I love that you just introduced it as OB-GYN, like something I have seen even more discourse on is like not referring to things as like women's health to try and be like more inclusive. I mean, obviously like the the residency program is OBGYN, but I feel like oftentimes, you know, it's like, oh, well, women's visit or I'm interested in Should I use health. should I use women's health? No, there well, you can use whatever you want, but Thank I think you. the the recommendations are to continue to use like OBGYN or gynecological exam or gynecologic or gynecologic visit oh, um, okay. or obstetric visit to be like inclusive to trans people as well that also like receive oh, care. Oh, from yeah, sure, providers. of course. So you're modeling, you're of teaching course. Use. I didn't even know it. Yeah. I did nice. not even know it. Yeah. The first thing we're going to talk about, or first thing we're going to hear from Dr. Hardy Fairbanks is that is her ideas about the impact that anybody can have on your patient. When a patient comes in and has a, a problem, maybe they have a substance use problem. Maybe they're a mom with a substance use problem. The, the, the attitude that they feel from you about what they're experiencing, what they're going through is important students and residents and providers and nurses and staff, they can have an impact in 10 seconds that can positively affect someone forever. It takes one person to show love and compassion to basically flip the switch and flip the whole narrative. And it, it didn't, I 100% believe that that nurse didn't know that that was the impact she had. She didn't go home that night and know that she had made that difference. But if we have every interaction like that, then over 
a career, you'll have that impact on so many people. And it doesn't mean that we don't all slip up. Sometimes I get frustrated too, but I try to turn that off when I walk in the room with a patient as much as I can. If you treat them with, with, with both non-judgment and respect and are careful about your interaction with them, then that can change the whole story for them. I guess I can speak from like personal experience, like the use of people's like pronouns and their, their, their names in the charts. I mean, sometimes, you know, there can nicknames or in like Epic or electronical medical records, maybe a little like in air quotes, harder to see, but always like checking those before you go into a patient's room. And like, like she was talking about in that first 10 seconds can really like set the tone for this person's entire visit for their perception of healthcare. If they come in and they're immediately invalidated by the incorrect use of their pronouns or mm. a dead name or things like that. I mean, there's a ton of trauma especially in like the trans community and LGBTQ plus community for that reason, for people not like respecting people's uh, whole entire identities in the first like 10 seconds. So if we can always be mindful of that, I'm sure that we can try and like undo some of the damage that the medical community's done. Yeah. And I think going beyond that, like even respecting it through like your clinical note, because patients have access to, even if they don't have access, you should still be respecting their, you know, pronouns and names that they want to be used and everything. But and I think as a patient, and I've read some of my clinical notes, when I go back and, I mean, the ones that have been written about me, when I go back and read them, sometimes, you know, you feel validated and you feel like your story was well representative, but sometimes it's it was all wrong or they said things that was the opposite of what you said. And so I think that being able to continue that respect throughout your charting and um, documentation is important too. To kind of go on the, the substance use, um, I feel like this has been something that's kind of been taught in some of our classes, both preclinical and clinical, but was extremely well modeled for me on my substance use rotation. And it was just kind of funny because again, it, it wasn't like we had lectures about this and how to interact with patients who have dual diagnoses, you know, a mental health diagnosis and a substance use diagnosis, but just like seeing my attending and it just being so relaxed and just so just matter of fact like okay yeah how how things been going and it's not like oh yeah you haven't gone back to heroin have you you know it's more like mm -hmm. yeah so what what's things looking like these days mm -hmm. you know yeah. um so i feel like a big part of how we approach these like some more difficult problems like sometimes we want to like protect it and like dance around the subject or whatever but i actually think just like, okay, I don't want to offend you by asking, but like, this is something that we ask all our, you know, you can say this is something we ask all our patients to normalize it, but something that I've learned as I've gone through medical school is just to be matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And that actually helps to put people at ease. Um, matter of fact, without judgment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Definitely. exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that I know that's what you mean because, you know, once you, once you start showing judgment then you're causing then you're then you're putting something in the way of your relationship with that patient you're putting something in the way of their success basically mm -hmm. assuming that you are part of the solution to the problem if you if you judge them if you show that you um, don't approve of their life or whatever their you know whatever their situation is then you're putting something in the way of that relationship she has more to say about that particular thing so much more yeah while you're pulling that up I, you know, I, I think judgment's the easy way to go too. That's what you hear and see 
literally everyone around you doing whether that's in medicine or outside of medicine I, th I think the common thing is like you're in this situation because you made these poor choices and you know that that's not necessarily the whole truth i, I think it's uh, a lot of these situations are really complex and difficult and there's a lot of factors around you know with with the trauma and and you know environment and and a situation that sometimes are out of the control of the person and granted they they may have made some choices down the line that they need to be responsible for but it, it's it's a very difficult complex place to be mm -hmm. sure some Oh, uh, speaking of judgment, hang on with that because <laughs> we're we're gonna do judgment right now. Oh, okay. We're jumping ahead, so <laughs> you're anticipating the vast majority of the patients we see, the system failed them, and their family failed them in some way. You know, they were introduced to substances at an age in which they, you know, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, when they. How do you how do you resist a parent who's offering you substances at 13? You know, what I mean, so I think a situation where, you know, they didn't have a choice in the opportunities and the avenues that they had. And so they coped in the very best way they knew how. And that may have been the only way they ever saw someone cope. Right. You're not talking about people who get to have a counselor when they're younger and, you know, see positive coping skills. The, the coping that they see is substances and other what we would consider more negative methods of coping. And so that's what that's what they know. And then I would say a ton of patients use substances for self-medication because they either can't can't see a psychiatric or a medical provider. They that care has been so stigmatized, it's inaccessible because of insurance or monetary reasons. And then they're introduced to a substance that tends to either improve or you know, make them not worry about all of the other things that they're struggling with. The other thing we see a ton of is patients whose partners introduce them to substances. And the, there's data out there to show that that's, you know, th there is pressure in partnerships that are fraught with violence, both emotional and physical. And then you introduce, you know, a partner with power with substances and then that's how a lot of our patients got introduced. So I think that's a little bit of what you were talking about, this sort of, you know, like you see, you know, you see a patient, you don't know their whole story, you don't know what their situation is. You might eventually discover that situation, but only if that interaction goes well the first time. Otherwise, you've just seen sort of a snapshot of, of their lives. Yeah, I, I think it's really key what she was talking about with like these people don't get the opportunity for therapy. And like we, we have such we're in such a crisis for mental health accessibility in this country. And we're in like one of the worst states on top of that. And, and you know, the ability to get any sort of therapy in a lot of rural areas is I mean, there's almost no opportunity for that. And we live, you know, like I said, we live in a very rural state and you know, you see a lot of these patients where like uh, a little bit of counseling 10 years ago would have really gone a long way for you. And you know, that, that wasn't an option because, you know, of either uh, social situation, uh, location where they're living, you know, finances, whatever. And it, it's, it's sad that as a society, we've allowed some of these th things to, to happen the, the way that they have.
Mm-hmm. Maybe broaden the discussion to, you know, other types of interaction or other types of problems that your patients have yeah. where they could be judged yeah. by their provider. Mm-hmm. Throwing um, back to judgment, what Madeline was talking about, I was just reading a Twitter thread and this is, we're talking a lot about mental health things in psychiatry, especially, and there's talks about primary gain or secondary gain on why people might enter the hospital system or in the emergency department. And for people who don't like maling- malingering, for example, mm-hmm. would be like a secondary gain motive where people maybe faking symptoms, you know, faking or whatever type of symptoms for a different reason. And Dr. Hardy Fairbankson mentioned this too, like the way that the system failed them. Like mm-hmm. if people's secondary gain is shelter, if people's secondary gain is like food, if their secondary gain is just basic safety, I think like once the title of malingering or something like that's put in a patient's chart, like boom, you've just like torched people's like perspective on that person for every like interaction that they have with the healthcare system is going to be tainted by that word. Yeah. Yep. Correct. And it's for, you know, the system failure that we cannot provide our citizens of this country with just basic shelter and food, which I think is like horrible you got to be anyway. so careful labeling patients with anything. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, I saw this yeah. like multiple times on my sub-internship in psychiatry, speaking a lot about psychiatry, but like personality disorders. One of the most common ones you'll hear about is borderline personality mm-hmm. disorder. Oh, yeah. Which is like, Even I've heard of that one. Yep. Hallmarked by people who have, you know, intense mood swings. It's like often called like emotional intensity disorder. People can have like hallmarked like self-injurious behaviors or suicide attempts and it can be very chronic and like several times we would like go and ask nurses in different units or you know people in the emergency department like oh how is you know patient so-and-so doing and like the first words out of people's mouths were oh they're so borderline which then just immediately you know like inserts like perceptions into my head that i like did not want i did Mm -hmm. it's not like relevant to like what we're here to do once you see that in like the one liner in the patient's chart that you open up, like blah, 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 patient is so-and-so with a history of borderline person or any personality disorder, for example, okay. just like totally like shapes your frame of reference and how you're going to approach that patient interaction. And yeah. and it can change the way you treat, like not only treat them like personally, but like medically, like if they have a history of something, then you're going to automatically think whatever they're coming in for now is that same thing. And you're not using like, you know, a broad differential mm-hmm. and you could be missing something major mm-hmm. in their medical or mental health. Madeline? We talked about this a lot in our, in the literature class with Kate that I just finished was just like the primary narrative and the counter narrative and these, how we're taught to kind of assimilate information as doctors, which is really useful, especially in high pressure, like quick decision making situations, like to have illness scripts in your head. But at the same time, you have to be careful because that lends you towards categorizing people and not keeping, it's that balance of keeping your differential broad, but also focused, which I think is a skill that every physician continues to attempt to balance for the rest of their career. But then another thing that we talked about, talking about just like, why might someone kind of misrepresent themselves in the hospital? We read this book called Heavy by Kiese Lehman, and he was talking about how like, you know, he's gotten to the point, the, the author was talking about the book and he's like, he's gotten to the point now where he feels very comfortable in his own skin and, you know, he's a black man in the like literature creative arts work but the only place that he doesn't want people to treat him black in quotes is the hospital and he puts on a button-up shirt and a necktie and whatever and so that's like 
so people's like secondary gains of misrepresenting themselves and their story and maybe not telling you the whole truth is because of ways that they have been failed by the system as dr hardy fairbanks was saying you know they Mm. they have this systemic trauma that may make them less likely to tell you the whole story and then if you come in with a judgmental attitude then that just compounds those issues even sometimes as a patient you know you're you're like you know you're you're not a minority patient you're not a substance user you're not a you know any of these you may not be any of these things that have these sort of negative or or problematic or or influencing labels right but you want something out of your interaction that day and so you may knowing that knowing that you're at the mercy of this physician who at that very moment has more power over you than or, or may have more power over you than than you have you may shape your story to get what you think you want is that something you guys have have encountered or noticed ever in patients i mean maybe you wouldn't even know that i guess if they were sufficiently skilled at it that makes me think like when i go to the doctor i desperately tried to I avoid saying that I'm a medical student because I don't want the doctor to, you know, assume that I know something or quiz me, God forbid, um, on <laughs> whatever I'm being diagnosed yeah. with. And so I feel like, you know, that's something that I try to hide, but it usually comes out and a part of kind of part of my identity that I am fine with in the rest of my life, but not when I'm a patient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was quizzed on the cranial nerves <laughs> when I went Jeez. to in the Good ENT. Lord, that's ridiculous. Like, he was... Do- <laughs> He was doing a neuro exam on me and he's like, okay, what am I testing? So annoying. And I was just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It, you know, it is interesting. I, I had a patient who has in his chart malingering diagnosis. And, you know, and, and working with that patient, it, it was really interesting because they knew the things to say. And, and like, I, I worked with that patient for a long course <laughs> during that particular rotation and, and carried carried that individual for a long time. And it, it was really interesting because you could tell there was so much family trauma there. Like the hospital was almost a safe place for that person, mm-hmm. that this was a place where they were comfortable that you know they they had some attention seeking behavior and and they were able to get that attention and it it was just such a difficult situation because the individual had some underlying health conditions that were really serious mm-hmm. and so there were all these things that you had to take so seriously but at at the same time uh, the, in the end, the visit was really nothing, but there was a relatively long hospital course and and it, it was just a really difficult situation to navigate. And I, I don't know that I did well with with navigating that situation. And, you know, I don't know that my attending did really well either. The attending had history with that patient. So, you know, that sometimes makes things more difficult. But yeah, I, they're very difficult situations to deal with for sure. Listeners, if you ask us a question, it means that I don't have to make something up to talk about on the show. And the show becomes what you want it to be. So send your questions to the shortcodes at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. Let's, let's try this one. All right. There's definitely additional due diligence that as a physician and as an institution and as a system, we need to do to ensure everyone's safe. But I also think 
if we want people to be successful at parenting and be successful in their pregnancies, being open and accepting of whatever choices they make has to be part of it because they won't tell us otherwise. I would much rather a patient tell me I used meth this morning than not tell me and then me give them a medicine that's going to cause a problem. But if they don't trust that I'm going to use that information in a safe way, they're not going to disclose it to me. I find that interesting in the in the non-judgmental, in, in the area of being not judgmental, because, you know, one of the things that you may think about as a provider is, oh my gosh, the baby, hmm. or oh my gosh, the children, or whatever that situation is. And so I'm wondering if you have thoughts about that idea. You're, you're in so, sometimes, especially as an OBGYN, you're you have two patients or maybe as a family doc. Yeah. I don't know how does that come up? So are you asking like, you know, to talk, how do you balance like providing information on potential harms of substance use Mm. versus acknowledging that like there may be continued use? Is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah, I think so. I think you put that very well. So let's go with that. (laughs) I guess like when asking, you know, if they've had substance use or, you know, how they're doing now, I think it's just important to be open and be like, this is this is the reason why I'm concerned and I'm concerned for your own health and for your um, baby's health. Um, And I think just being open and honest can create trust and a good relationship with the patient and just being, you know, as non-judgmental as you can. I think that sometimes as learners, like as for myself, I've noticed and when I've seen other medical students try to approach this topic, sometimes it can be difficult because we're learning and we're trying to get the information that we need in order to present to our attending and trying to get the full story. And, you know, there's things like in sexual history, you're supposed to get five P's and, you know, I only got four and you're trying to rack your brain for the fifth. And I'm just, there's a lot going on when you're a medical student and learning and trying to navigate these hard conversations. And so also trying to be empathetic at the same time can be difficult. And I think sometimes medical students, including myself, can mess up that confidence with patients at times um, because we are still learning and trying to navigate it. Yeah, I think one of my longest patient, you know, after going through our core year, uh, I think my longest patient encounter was on uh, maternal fetal medicine, like a high risk uh, OB clinic. And it was a mom who had like recently had a heart attack from meth use and like was coming in for their first pregnancy or, you know, like, not confirmation visit, but, you know, like an eight week establishing care conversation. It was like, you know, extremely long visit, but like it needed to be done. And I think mm. what I saw in that visit compare, you know, kind of outside of OB was like, in my experience, similar to like how we counseled patients on like COVID-19 vaccine. And I think this can be like extended, not just like in parents who are, you know, using substances, but like the dual, Oh, I don't know exactly how I'm like trying to like phrase this, but like your behavior, like can impact other people, you know, for example, like if, you know, it's a parent who has a child with an immune deficiency or things like that. And like presenting, like, here's why we, you know, this, certain action like can be harmful at the end you know to other people here's why x y and z but at the end of the day like the best treatment plan is one that they're going to follow and you know as the research has shown and as we've known for literal thousands of years like addictive substances like are extremely difficult to quit and i think what dr hardy fairbanks was talking about was like harm reduction like at its core is that we know that we can't always like change, you know, people's behavior, but what we can do is like try and like make it safer. So if it's, you know, hey, like 
you know, I would, I think it would be best in the best health of your baby if you like did not use methamphetamines. But if while we work on a treatment plan, you know, to try and like reduce those behaviors, like here's ways that we can like use meth safer. You know, here's mm-hmm. how we can, you know, find access to clean needles and, you know, not to like share or supply, you know, X, Y, and Z. And mm-hmm. so I think that's, she hit it like right on the head that we can't always change people's behaviors, but we can at least like try and help. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, one of the things we, we talked about during, or she talked about during that that interview was, and I, I don't want to mischaracterize her, so I'm going to be careful, but parents, m- moms who use drugs can still be good parents. You know, we all use substances, right? I drink, I got a coffee right here. I used to, I, you know, drink alcohol on occasion. And, you know, yes, if you're a parent who, if you're a mom who uses methamphetamine on the regular then yeah, there are risks there for your, for you and your, and your kids, Mm -hmm. but you don't need to immediately jump to the conclusion that, Oh God, the child's in danger. You might be a mandatory reporter though, but you can also mandatory, you can also report in way, in a way that is compassionate and, and focused on your patient. And I think that goes an opposite way too. Like you could have a parent who seems to be, you know, doesn't use substances, doesn't, you know, seems very put together and has, you know, lots of money and resources and they could not be a good parent too. Yeah. Behind, you know, behind the office room door. And so being not, not judgmental and coming in with like, I don't know, an open mind to every situation is important. There have been times too where I've been just really surprised by an individual that I like find out that they actually are using substances uh, like it just kind of surprised me given the situation or or maybe they're like using prescribed medications in a way that they weren't prescribed to, you know to to get that kind of feeling of of euphoria or whatever so it, you know it, it can like sometimes patients can surprise you and like somebody who seems really well put together who's you know got this great career and great family and you realize oh you're actually really struggling with mm-hmm. with you know substance use and, and you're really just calling out for help yeah and what a way to like use you know potential and as dr hardy fairbanks had mentioned too like the self-medication like what an opportunity mm-hmm. if people are honest you know about it to like try and get people connected with resources you know whether it's like oh you know if is your heroin use like are you in a lot of pain like are there you know tests we can run or can we talk more about like the chronic pain you know has this not been worked worked up appropriately i think there's like a lot of opportunity there as well to just improve people's like overall health you know and maybe the introduction was was substance use Mm mm-hmm if I'm lucky, this this quote or this quote is is sort of relevant in that, you know, sometimes new physicians, residents, med students, well, probably residents are, are under the impression that, you know, your patient is here today and you have to fix them and you have to do it all today because this is your one chance. I and mean, here's what she has to say about that. When I was very first out of residency and I would see a patient who had had multiple abortions, there is this draw in me to really have a deep discussion about what contraception they were leaving with that day. Like that was my job is to make sure they left with birth control. And I don't think that was entirely wrong, but it definitely was about me. Right. And so the director of the clinic I go to pulled me aside and she said, you know, they may not be ready to talk about that today. Today they're here to have a procedure to not be pregnant anymore. And that may not be something that they're ready to talk about. 
And, but you know, you're taught, they're interacting with the healthcare system, this is your opportunity, get it done, you know? And it took me a while to kind of back up and say, well, am I having that conversation with them about birth control in the way I'm having it for them? Or am I doing it for me in our society? I think that's all over like clinical interactions in some of these controversial subjects and even just things that are very mundane, like, or you would think are just very run of the mill or whatever. I think, you know, we make a lot. It's easy to be selfish human beings and to just kind of say like, I'm the fixer, you know, I'm going to get this done or whatever. And whether you're trying to, you think you're doing the best for the patient or you're trying to prove yourself as a new doctor, as she's saying, I think that's so easy to fall into, but a big part, you know, and we've had these conversations. I'm very appreciative. We've had these conversations in our preclinical like caps in mass about just like truly listening to a patient's story. Like what, what do you want out of the appointment today? I think just that one question guiding the whole appointment gets you so far. And if that patient feels respected and heard and, you know, journey towards healing or whatever they're seeking, then they'll more likely to come back rather than forcing an issue that they, yeah, like she said, they might not be ready to talk about. And that's what like motivational interviewing is about too. You know, how ready are you? to talk about this, you know, so then you kind of know kind of where they stand so that you don't push them into something that they aren't ready for. Yeah. I think like, you know, one more, you know, Madeline, you mentioned some mundane aspect. One thing I see a lot on inpatient rotations is you'll have like a patient who comes in who, who's diabetic and their blood sugar's all over the place. And, you know, everybody's interrogating that patient on like, what are you doing at home? Like, why isn't your blood sugar under control? Like your A1C is crazy. Like, what are you taking on and on and on? And then we create this crazy regimen here in the hospital that, you know, there's no way when they leave the hospital that they're going to be able to to manage whatever we're doing here. And, and you know, there's like a ton of judgment in, in a lot of the discussion that's going on between, you know, physicians and med students and nurses and, you know, mm-hmm. the diabetic nurses who, who come up and like that, those patients, you know, yeah. are, are stuck in a, a rough spot. And then they're given this regimen that mm-hmm. they're not able to do at home. And then they end up back in the same spot where they're not taking any of their, yeah. their diabetic well, medications. And yeah. So talking about systems and like, so psychosocial factors, you know, sometimes, you know, people come into the hospital and they're get they're eating three meals a day. And mm-hmm. so their blood sugars are crazy. We're at home. They might only have be able to afford to eat one meal a day and that's totally. a whole nother issue but you know i think for the most part we do a pretty good job of like trying to keep that when we're creating plans for patients who are diabetic but yeah we have to consider that you know when they go home they might not need that much insulin because they might not be eating as much food as they're eating in the hospital so just an example of the back story is just so important 
Yeah. Something mm-hmm. that really resonated with me when she, Dr. Hardy Fairbanks was talking was I did some research on post access to postpartum contraception and it's important to have adequate spacing between pregnancies. And so we oftentimes counsel patients that they shouldn't get pregnant again within 18 months of delivering. And so a lot of times people do that using contraception. And I think as like medical people, we oftentimes view situations in our lives as very planned and regimented. And a lot of us are type A and don't like surprises, but other people are like, okay with surprises and maybe okay with getting pregnant again, even though it's not the full 18 months. And so I think recognizing our own biases as far as like tendencies and personalities is important because like what's been said before is that we have to prescribe and create treatment plans that patients are actually going to follow and and align with their values. I can attest to to like the push and pull that Dr. Hardy Fairbanks was mentioning kind of between patient-centered care and paternalistic care and like Mm -hmm. wanting to make sure that what the patient wants to talk about is at the forefront and not wanting to be that person to fix it right in the moment. It can be difficult or at least it felt difficult like I felt this tug and I noticed that I was thinking in a more paternalistic mindset, for example, like working at like UI mobile clinic or free clinics where somebody comes in and they're like, I haven't been to a doctor in 30 years. And maybe their like focus at that visit was, for example, like a little like I not little every like infection is important, but like a, a sty on their eye. But then you like see lab values and it's like your, you know, blood pressure is like wildly high and your hemoglobin A1C is, you know, through the roof. And like, you know, I felt myself wanting to like add on priorities to this person's visit because like they had a demonstrated, you know, that they weren't having like there were high serious contact. issues that needed to be addressed, but also Right. It wasn't yeah. you're at the mobile clinic, you know, and it was feel nothing from their high blood pressure, but it's our responsibility to mention it and say that we can. Right. And I yeah. felt that push and pull of like that patient, like didn't not that they didn't care, but it wasn't a priority for them. You know, it wasn't patient centered care that I was like trying to like it must be so establish hard. that. So like that push and pull is real like that, mm-hmm. you know, that patient centered care versus paternal. Like it's hard to you know because we have the knowledge in air quotes of like the downstream effects that these things can have that people might not and it's hard not to like impart our priorities on because people also like are entitled once they've been provided that information to like do with mm-hmm. as they will, you know, if somebody doesn't want to treat their diabetes or doesn't want to treat their hypertension. I mean, that's... But I do think it's like part of our responsibility to tell them of right. the risks of right. it so uh, that they can make an informed yeah, decision. Right. Yeah. All righty then. Let's try this one. This one might be relevant to a couple of you. She's talking here about as you proceed in your career, what gaining confidence in your abilities looks like. I think for me in residency, there was a atmosphere of humility, but I definitely had experiences in residency where I was able to see interactions that I knew were not what I wanted to be like when I grew up as a doctor. And then, you know, you become a doctor and they're like, here are the keys to the kingdom. Just go do your thing. And, you know, I the first year you're just trying to, I call it the confidence curve. So you know all your stuff, but you don't have the confidence yet to know that you know your stuff. And so you're just working really hard to get that confidence. And I feel really strongly that if I had had some sort of formal rubric for how to have those patient interactions in a really trauma-informed way. And then also that it's okay to feel that it's heavy sometimes. I wouldn't have had to figure it out on my own, you know, which I did over several years. And with a lot of, again, we're always learning, you know, I had to do a lot of reading and a lot of courses and it certainly would have 
been very helpful to have it earlier on. And I think to give, to speak to the importance of self-reflection and that sort of aspect of care, that just wasn't a thing 15 years ago when I was in medical school, right? It just wasn't. And I think that's, it's wonderful that it's part of it now because we know, I mean, I know that when I get those moments of burned out and stress, I'm, I'm not as, I can feel my heart not be as open. Reaction. She said that when you start residency, you, you know everything, but you don't have the confidence. I don't agree. I don't yeah. feel like I know everything. I'm with you. I know very little. I'm with you there. I have a lot to learn. Well, let's talk about burnout. Sure. It's important to know that burnout is unavoidable, right? So I think just because medicine is hard and I don't think it's, I think it's unavoidable in any profession because we, we work long hours and we do hard work and it's emotionally tiring and it's physically tiring. And so burnout is unavoidable. So I think what is most important is knowing that it's unavoidable. So how do you lessen it? How do you treat it when it happens? And I think for me, being able to enter a room and have an emotionally positive patient encounter, oh man, I am so much less frustrated when I know that went well, right? Like if you're just slogging through 40 clinic appointments and you get nothing back from that, how how is that going to bolster you on the really hard days, you know? And so I think there is huge benefit in longevity to approaching patients with openness. You know, it can help you feel like you're getting something back from what you do every day. Hmm. I think she's talking about, you know, like, I don't think she's saying that burnout is unavoidable in the sense that, you know, I mean, there's, there's the idea that the system causes burnout. Of course, that's avoidable. It's just that the system is what the system is at the moment that you guys are going to enter it. I don't anticipate the system changing. <laughs> so how are we going to manage... How are you going to manage that burnout that you will inevitably feel? Everybody feels burnt out yeah. on, on occasion. Even, even I do, and my job is not half as difficult as yours is going to be. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so how do you deal with that burnout when it crop, when it rears its ugly head? Well, and I think like just thinking about the individuals here who are talking, I, I think we're all looking at specialties where we're going to see people at some of their worst moments in their lives. And, and to do that again and again and again, that's hard. Mm -hmm. That's hard. So you have to have something and some way to kind of, separate your life a little bit and and that's very difficult to do i think that's very difficult for a lot of people to to not take the baggage from work home and you know i don't know that i have a good answer for that mm -hmm. uh, uh, as to how to not do that but i i think you know setting up good practices in your life with you know people that you love and care about to to do or or, or even just like you know own your own personal things your own personal space like exercise um i i was talking to a friend who heard this from a, a physician that like whenever he shuts his car off he knows that it it's like time to to be dad you know uh, a spouse like he's no longer a physician he shuts his car off and he's he's all these other things so sometimes he'll sit in the driveway and just let his car run for a while because he knows <laughs> he's got to process some things mm -hmm. before 
Uh, so you know, find a way to process. Sometimes the a commute. Process. Yeah. Sometimes a yeah. long commute might actually be a good thing. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. prevention is the best medicine. And this is not like to start ramming against the system, but I do think prevention oftentimes is like the best medicine. And so this is me just like going through like wanting to pursue psychiatry. And I'm so impressed that hearing of residency programs that have process groups that have like opt out therapy sessions and things like that for the residents. I'm not sure what it's like for other specialties, but like psychiatry is not the only specialty that like Nick was saying, that's going to like see people at their worst or that's going to see patient death or Mm -hmm. et cetera. And like, I think if we can, as a system, start to like incorporate like prevention, you know, like opportunities for people to just like unload the baggage for Mm -hmm. people to, you know, process with people who are going through something similar. And I think Mm -hmm. there's something special about that. Like, yes, everybody has like their trusted family members and significant others or things like that, that they feel comfortable talking to. But oftentimes like those people might not fully appreciate the gravity of the situations or like be able to empathize Mm -hmm. in like specific ways that your peers can. So I think that's super important. They may also, I mean, I hate to say this, but they may also feel you may also transfer your anxiety to your family mm-hmm. when you're burnt out because I feel yeah. like, you know, if you, you know, like it's so hard, you know, like you, you, if you, if you're married, right, let's say, and you go home and you talk to your spouse about how horrible your work day was or your life was, your life is or whatever. That's a stressful thing to hear about as that Mm -hmm. can be a stressful thing to hear about as a spouse. They're not an impartial observer. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of worry about that too. You know, like it's, it's kind of Mm -hmm. like, yes, the, one of the great benefits of being married is having someone to share life, both the good parts and the bad parts. Mm -hmm. But the, there is a cost associated with that when things aren't going well mm-hmm. and if things continue yeah. to not go well for a long period of time i.e mm-hmm. you are truly burnt out not just like garden variety oh god i'm so burnt out but <laughs> like you're truly burnt out that is that must be very concerning mm-hmm. for significant other spouse whatever mm-hmm. can't speak to spouse thing, but oh, yeah. oh what i've like my husband and i are like huge talkers well especially me so i've had to make sure that i have like other people that i can talk to so it's just not always him all the time and yeah i'm excited about these like process groups and residency because i think it's really helpful to be able to share with people who are kind of going through the same thing the other thing that i've tried to do is like to find other spouses or significant others that are non-medical that are married to medical people or in a relationship with medical people so that my spouse has people that he can relate to as well, because it's, well, actually Nick's wife does a really good job. So Nick and I will be like blabbing about school, school, <laughs> school. True. And then Miriam will be like, so Alex, how is work? <laughs> and she's just like, I'm cutting off the medical talk. We're going to yeah. listen to her other perspectives. <laughs> I think kind of switching gears a little bit, something else that has helped me prevent or fight burnout and I think will help in the future is having other projects that aren't necessarily like 
as medicine-based like advocacy projects and doing mm. research on health disparities and trying to improve kind of the deeper issues that we talked about kind of in the beginning more like health disparity things and um, trying to look at the bigger picture and because a lot of the things we see in clinic are just sometimes feel like putting band-aids on a bigger problem and so working towards like those bigger problems can mm. be helpful as well as like medical education. I'm very passionate about teaching and I feel like um, impacting the next generation of doctors can also be inspiring and something that you can get passionate about that will help you carry on throughout your clinical work. Do you think you know, one of the things I thought of when you were describing these things is, you know, okay, that sounds really good. It's more work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think I think also, going like, down the lane that I was actually just thinking. Okay. Um, Go down that lane, Nick. So, uh, you know, I think learning to say no. I, I think that there's kind of been, like, if you follow med Twitter a little bit, especially like med ed Twitter, an academic medicine Twitter, there have been a few individuals who have, like, really expressed some frustration toward, like, this pushed... Uh, do 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 publish 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 like continue uh pushing the needle forward help help uh, help yeah involve get involved you know yeah and that's at the expense of you know their their personal lives their you know their families their sometimes their patients or their patient care their what they want to actually accomplish in medicine and you know i think that we need to maybe learn to say no to certain things mm-hmm. like it's good to, you know, want to change the system and like we need people to do that and we need to be involved with that at times. But, you know, maybe there can be times in our careers where we pick things up and put things down yeah. and we don't have to be the champion for everything. And I should be careful here. Yeah. You know, Emma, what you said <laughs> is wonderful. And that's and, and if that recharges you, mm. then that's what you should do. Yeah. You know, if if. If being involved in advocacy work is what, you know, staves off burnout, then that is exactly what you should do. If you're burnt out, you can do something else. You can fucking carve wood or <laughs> everybody's cup is different and nobody yeah. can pour yeah. from an empty cup. So you got to find your special, your uh, magic sauce, your special you juice. And... Kansas City has some great recreational sports leagues and I'm so excited to start playing volleyball again. <laughs> That's what I was thinking about when I was talking. I was like, I just want to play volleyball in my free time. Sweet. (laughs) But no, Uh, I think doing things like, so I view the podcast and how I talked about the podcast on my interviews is just like, I love answering pre-meds questions and also just being very real with what like medical school in the path towards becoming a physician is like, not like creating this dark cloud, but I, I hated when I was like an M1 or a pre-med people just saying like, oh yeah, you have to be perfect. You have to do this, do this, do this. Or like, you know, I study like 14 hours a day, nonstop, whatever. And like I, in my interactions with people who are further like behind in the journey from me is like, I just try to say like, I struggled at this and I succeeded at this. And I honestly was not like, I didn't sign up for seven different leadership positions. I just did the things that I love doing, you know, to just create realistic Mm -hmm. expectations. So that's something that I really, towards Emma was saying, you know, kind of teaching, but more in the mentoring lane. And I Mm -hmm. even include the podcast as one of those, you know, speaking to all the people that listen and just being like, this is a picture into what life is like (laughs) for Mm -hmm. better, for worse. This is how we prevent burnout. We should we be vulnerable and open and honest. Mm-hmm. And totally. 
I have one more clip to play. You guys are exposed to a lot of situations in classes, on the wards. And if you've got a background of trauma yourself as a student or as a resident, then that can also be problematic. And so we talked a little bit about that. In our society, it is impossible to avoid hearing from patients about traumatizing situations. And so I think what's important is that we take care of ourselves so that we can be open to those situations and those experiences in a way that allows us to take care of ourselves, but also take care of the patient. I just don't, it's, it's unavoidable, right? If you look at, you know, trauma scores in our patients, 100% of our substance use patients have a history of some trauma and 90 plus percent have ACEs scores of before. You know, it, it, and if you want to provide trauma-informed care, you have to be able to hear about it. Now, I do think what the way I describe it is it gets heavy, right? So I, you know, in the substance use world, it, it gets heavy. In the abortion world, it gets heavy. You know, we are the, we get to carry the stories that patients tell us. And that's both a huge responsibility, but also an honor. But it, it does, it gets heavy. And so I think it's important as a medical provider to do the things that we need to do to keep our spirits and our minds healthy. And you know, for me, that's self-reflection, it's teaching, it's a lot of riding my Peloton. You know, so everybody has their own their own thing. And so I think it's what's great about having the opportunity to learn about these things in medical school is that it's an opportunity to figure out what works best in terms of how to keep yourself spiritually and emotionally healthy. Parallels there with what we were discussing just before that. Well, yeah, she was just talking about basically, yeah, it's really heavy to just encounter this. And if you have trauma yourself or if you don't, like at least capital T trauma, yeah, you have to have an outlet and you have mm. to have like a purpose of life beyond not only to just create balance in your life, but also for me, sometimes it's like, I need to prove to myself that I am more than just this life. So if I were to ever decide to step away or have to step away for any reason that I would have other things to live for as well. So I think, yeah, things like your favorite form of physical activity or the people that you love spending time with kind of helps make the burden of carrying these really heavy stories a little mm. bit more manageable. And, and, and speaking of the, the sort of re-traumatization that students and residents might feel when they're working with patients who have similar traumas or traumas that they strongly relate to, any, any thoughts about how to mitigate that or how to cope with that? Because because this is something that comes up every once in a while in, in in medical education where, you know, you're sitting in a class and you're hearing, you know, maybe you're, I don't know, maybe, maybe you have a former substance problem, mm -hmm. substance use issue, but you're talking about substance use issues and you are, you know, re-traumatized. Or maybe somebody says something to you, maybe one of your classmates says something to you that that brings up feelings from your past that you had thought you had gotten over or, or something, you know, something along those lines. Does that make sense? 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think for me, what's been helpful is, well, first of all, like going through medical education, you get exposure, like usually like little by little, like when the first time you see a certain type of patient, you're going to observe first. And so it's not like in your like responsibility to treat them completely. Sure. And so that can be helpful. But also what's been helpful is just being okay with like saying, I need to step away for a second. Like, mm-hmm. um, this is just a little bit triggering. I'm just going to step in the hall or I'll, I'll meet you at the next patient or even just saying, I've, I need to use the restroom. I'm going to skip out on, or I'll meet you at the next patient. Sure. Or um, even in class, you know, if something comes yeah. up in class that you in that moment don't feel like you can fully engage with because of your past, mm-hmm. there's nothing that says you can't like go to the bathroom mm-hmm. or just, mm-hmm. you know, Go back and watch the Panopto later if it's a if it's a Panopto class. Mm-hmm. And I think it's helpful to reflect after that experience too, and to you know try to separate your own experience from the experience, the new experience. And with time, I've found that it's been easier, and that I've been able to handle those situations better. I guess. I know there's kind of a general guideline on not to like disclose like your past history with patients too, but I oh, a little part of me always kind of wants to like fight against that because I feel like oftentimes like what people not always are looking for but would appreciate is like some comfort to know that they're not alone yes in that experience and I think I've seen it done where there are ways that you can kind of like hint at like you know you're like you're not alone in that you know like Mm -hmm. without like divulging your whole like life story with patients to like let them know like hey this shit that you're going through is tough yeah. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, whether you self-disclose or you like yeah. say like, oh, my mom, you know, you like bring in other people like into the encounter. Because, again, the obvious danger there is, you know, by revealing your past, you're now making it about you. Correct. Mm-hmm. Which is not the goal. Which is not the goal. And yes. also be like, you think your problems are <laughs> hard. Here's my problems. Right. It's yeah. definitely a fine line. And I think most time, you know, it's probably better to err on like not disclosing mm-hmm. that like the... 99% of the time mm-hmm. but oh there's like that little piece hey. of me that's like oh it could be could be powerful mm-hmm. but Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us and don't forget to tag us in your post. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Something I'm thinking about, like, is planning fourth year schedule. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to do all online electives. Like, <laughs> I know a lot of people know that. And I know, so it's like, why not? And then I'm like, holy sh, I'm going to have to, like, actually take care of people. Yeah, yeah, I'm a little worried about that. But at the same time, like, whether I did a whole bunch of electives, like, I wasn't going to be doing electives right now. I'm finding it very hard to study. Yeah, yeah, because like right now in April, most most of all of us, except for those of us who are staying here, and I've still filled my life full of stuff. But everybody's like trying to move. Yeah. So right. like you don't want to be doing anything in April yeah. or May. Uh, well, we we're talking of. about like knowledge, and I'm like, oh yeah, like after you know I get my electives done in October. Yeah. Like I really didn't. I'm like I want to have everything, but like that's almost like a year of so zero I, I, like patient care. One of my mentors said like have two two or three of my mentors actually said have fun now. Yeah. Like because. Said. You're you're going to get it when Regardless. when you come. You're going to learn everything we're going to teach you. Like even I was going to take an internal medicine sub I. Um I know, right? <laughs> I ended up doing med psych. But like I was told by uh, my advisor, we're going to teach you the medicine you need to know. Like yeah. you don't cuz I felt like my internal medicine rotation wasn't very good cuz of COVID and yep. I I got pulled like 
halfway through that was a yeah, rotation like i was on and so i i felt like i didn't know any internal medicine and he was like don't worry about it you're gonna be fine <laughs> like we're gonna teach you all the medicine you need to know so so you'll learn it. i have some thoughts on this because i've i've gone through points where um like yeah like it's like have fun like do all these things and i i have been able to cross a lot of things off like not like my bucket list, like my life bucket list, but I made like a, a fourth year of medical school bucket <laughs> list just to, you know, go and just do things that I know knew was going to be really hard to do. But I found with like a too much free time, I kind of sunk into like a semi-depressed yeah. like space where I just really like, yeah, I had all this free time and I had like all my hobbies that I love doing, but it was just hard to do them. So I guess I would recommend like, like for me, the substance use elective was like the perfect type of rotation that it taught me a skill, like covered a topic that was like really important. It was only two weeks. It was Monday, Wednesday, Friday of clinic, half day on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So just, so finding things like that to like connect you back to clinical mm -hmm but nothing too intense yeah. because I mean, I just did a month of this literature class with the humanities program. And I felt like the conversations that we had in that class were so important, just talking about patient narrative and stories and how they can be misrepresented. And just all the stuff that we've been talking about this whole podcast was just so much more helpful. I've been attending these financial literacy classes like that they have once a month through our med school so helpful for life planning so that's what i feel like fourth year is about and i almost feel like they shouldn't have increased the electives back up to what they were uh, you're telling me yeah. <laughs> i still did all of them somehow yeah <laughs> nice but yeah they shouldn't have increased them back up and they should they should have like a fourth year elective that's worth four weeks of credit where you like do things like go to financial planning classes, like figure out what your loan payment plan, just all of this life home stuff ec. that yeah. we there, need to figure out. I students. feel like it should count. There is a rotation for all of that, and it's called yeah. Financial Management for Rising Interns, uh, but it is limited in space, so that's unfortunate. Yeah, I was just thinking more than just finances too, just like talking about like, I don't know. There's just been so many things that I've done on my own that have been really way more helpful for me developing as a person and as a physician mm -hmm. than sitting in a rotation that is not going to necessarily be super relevant slash is just going to be weird at this point in fourth <laughs> year. Well, they also have the thriving physician elective where they do like hot yoga and go on walks and meditate and stuff that's good so, for your that'll yeah. make you a better physician. my roommate did it well, okay it super fun the and the other thing about that course that i found out is they talk about the systemic issues that lead to physician burnout so mm -hmm. it's not it's not just like mm -hmm. talking at you saying like you need to do all these things for your mm -hmm. mental health it's like no we acknowledge the systems and the structures that like can tear you down but this is how you can protect yourself while mm. also advocating for greater change. I hate to interrupt, but I have to go see a house. But okay. I really, really love this podcast, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> no, I these conversations are really great. So I'm glad I was able to join from distance. So wish me luck on the house. Hunt. Good luck. Good luck. Bye. Bye. See you, Bye. And you know, on that note, that's our show. Madeline, cool. Nick, Nathan, Emma, thanks for being on the show with me today. 
Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dave. And what kind of ding-dong would I be if I didn't thank you, Short Coast, for making us part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available. Uh, our editors are Maddie Welleen and Nick Lind. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government, and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but in my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. 